evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're our guest, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. If you would be, open your Bibles to Acts, the ninth chapter. That's 973 in the Bible that's in your pews, 973. And we'll be studying together in, uh, mostly in that particular book tonight. So be sure and open your Bible and we'll study along together. We are uh, thankful that we have a group doing mission work, our teen vacation Bible school is being conducted this week in, Marling, in Marlington, West Virginia, and about 25 individuals uh, left there on Friday of this past week, and they'll return Friday night of this week. Uh, they have arrived safely uh, in this small town. It kind of gives you an idea of comparing towns. Uh, you remember that we knocked all week and covered 11,000 doors and still didn't finish all of Mount Juliet city limits. Uh, those 25 knocked two hours and they finished the whole town, every door. And, uh, and so that also kind of gives you a, a, an insight to the size of the town and the size of the congregation and what it means to them for our young people to be there and to give them that, that spurring on of energy and of uh, talent. And we are thankful that they are doing that. And let's be prayerful that truly great spiritual good will come about of their efforts there. It's exciting to hear the announcements about Bible Bowl. Make sure that if you're a parent or a grandparent, make sure that you're doing everything that you need to do uh, to encourage your youth in that, to learn as much as they can possibly learn, and for the glory of God. This is information that makes a difference in our eternity. The better we know the Word of God, the better we know God. And the better we know God, the better our life is. And let's make sure that we encourage our young people Uh, to really, really be students of the Word of God. Isn't it wonderful? A wonderful week, a wonderful day today with uh, Caitlin being baptized into Christ this morning. And do continue to pray for all of our uh, young uh, babes in Christ and for all the Bible studies that will continue. There will be several Bible studies that will take place again tomorrow. So be prayerful about all of the things that just continue to be done. Lord Littleton and Gilbert West, they were Englishmen that lived in the 18th century. Both of them were lawyers. Both of them were very strong unbelievers. As a matter of fact, in conversation one day, they both came to the conclusion that Christianity ought to be strongly disproved. And they began to talk about what it would take to really make the house of cards of Christianity crumble completely. And their decision was this. Their conclusion was there were two premises that must fail if Christianity is going to be proven wrong. One is the resurrected Christ, and the second was the conversion of Saul by the Lord on the road to Damascus. Isn't that interesting? The reason I give you that illustration This evening is, I want to whet our appetite as we study the conversion of Saul this evening. Do you realize how important it is? Do you realize how important it is to our Christian faith? What if that could be proven wrong? Many unbelievers say that that is one of the most powerful stems of Christianity. So they set on their journey. They decided that they each would do research. And as a matter of fact, Gilbert said, I will do research to prove the alleged theory of the resurrected Christ. And and he says to Littleton, you do research to prove that there would be no way that Saul was converted by the Lord on the road to Damascus. 
they parted their ways. For quite some time, they did their research. And when they met back again, they were a little bit sheepish as they talked with each other at first. Because what each of them had to admit was, the more I've studied this, the more I've found that there's validity to this. I'm having a hard time disproving this. They both shared that with each other and decided they would part their ways again for a period of time and they would see where their studies took them. And where their studies took them was this. Gilbert West wrote The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, arguing that the resurrection was in fact a part of history. And then Lord Littleton wrote The Conversion of St. Paul, believing that it did take place exactly as the book of Acts records. Friends, tonight, will you join me in a study as we continue our series through Acts, of thinking about Acts as an action book. A book where Jesus Christ, before He ascended into heaven, said, this is only in the book of Luke, the work that I have begun. And the book of Acts is a continuation of the work of the Lord on this earth. And so as we read about the church, we're reading about the work of the Lord through the hands of the apostles, through the hands of the church. And even today, let's let it be true that the work of the Lord is continuing in the Mount Juliet community through the hands of the Mount Juliet church. And if the book of Acts was going to continue to record the work of the Lord on this earth, wouldn't it be awesome if we had our place in it where the Lord would say, bless them, I approve of what they're doing. They're following me. They're submitting their life to me. They're spreading the kingdom just as I have designed. And so as we think tonight about lights, camera, action, we think about one of the most powerful conversion stories in the Bible itself. Look with me, if you will, to Acts, the ninth chapter, and let's see who is this man, Saul. When you look in the ninth chapter in verse 11, we learn something about where he grew up. In 11, it says, So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. This is what he's telling Ananias. And acquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Isn't that interesting that we have insight to where he grew up, and it's interesting to note that Tarsus was a town with a lot of Greek atmosphere. As a matter of fact, it was one of three university towns that were prominent in that day and time. That's why, like in Acts the 17th chapter, when Paul was able to speak there in Greece, he was able to quote from their prophets and from their poets because he knew their history very well. You could also imagine how that might have made his parents a little bit nervous. If you will, go with me to Acts the 22nd chapter. In Acts the 22nd chapter, we get a little bit more of the history of this man. In Acts the 22nd chapter in verse 3, not only was he from that Greek atmosphere of Tarsus, but notice as he says in 22 and 3, I am indeed a Jew. Born in Tarsus of Sicily, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Who is this man? Not only did he have that background in Tarsus, but he makes it very clear here, he is a Jew. And Philippians, the third chapter, would reveal to us not only he was a Jew, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was the tribe of Benjamin. He was one zealous for the work of the Lord. Who was he? He was one that grew up in a home where all of their culture was rooted in that of the Hebrew people. 
They could speak the native tongue. They practiced all of the doctrine, the teachings and traditions that would come out of the Old Testament. He was a man that knew the law and knew it very well. And then there's something to add to this that was quite dynamic. Flip over to the 22nd chapter and verse 25. The 22nd chapter and verse 25. And notice what Paul reveals here when they were about to persecute him. As they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Wow. A Roman citizen. No doubt this man must have come from a family that had quite a bit of money and or power. He was born as a Roman citizen. The city of Tarsus that would have had a strong Greek background. But raised up as a Hebrew among Hebrews. And then probably, tradition would say probably about the age of 14, his parents would have said, Son, you can't stay here We've got to get you the top-notch education. We're moving you now to Jerusalem. And there you're going to study with the best. Friends, it is not a stretch to say this would be similar today when someone says, we're going to send our child to Harvard. We're an influential family. We have money. We're sending our child to Harvard. And so they sent their child to a place where he could receive the best education of his day. No wonder Jesus knew he could use that man. No wonder Paul could say in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, I strive to come all things to all men whereby I might win some. Why? Because if you wanted to talk with a Jew, he knew all about it. If you wanted to talk with someone with a Greek background, he knew about that. If you wanted to talk with somebody that needed a Roman influence, he could do that. Friends, Paul could go in and open doors that Peter couldn't have opened. James or John wouldn't have had the same opportunities that he would have had. When we talk about a conversion that had a huge impact and influence upon the first century church, I don't know if we can even fully understand the impact that Saul being converted to Christianity had. Not only because what he was able to offer because of his education, because of his background, and because of his past experiences, but also because in converting him took away such a powerful enemy of the church. Look with me, if you will, to the 8th chapter of Acts. As you're turning to the 8th chapter of Acts, I want to remind you again of that list of things in Philippians 3 where he was describing all the things that he was willing to count for loss that he might gain Christ. And in Philippians, the third chapter, in verse 6, he would say, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Isn't that an interesting description? He says, you want me to tell you about my life in the past where I was really climbing the ladder among the Pharisees? I was really becoming uh, powerful. I was becoming popular. I was very successful in my circle of peers. And, And he would say, let me tell you what I was known for. I was known for my zeal, and my zeal was proven by the way that I persecuted Christians. Let's read at least three passages to get the insight of what he means here when he was persecuting Christians. Look, if you will, back at the end of the seventh chapter. Remember when Stephen is being stoned in the seventh chapter in verse 58? There's two sentences there. Look at the second sentence. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
Here's the first Christian martyr, and who was a part of it? Saul was there. What do we find out in the 8th chapter and verse 1? Now Saul was consenting to his death. If not in this passage, definitely by the time we come to the 26th chapter, we have a strong reason to believe by the wording here that Paul had already, he would have been Saul here. Saul would have already gained such influence that he was probably already invited to serve in the Sanhedrin council. And the council would vote whenever prisoners were taken, are we going to allow this one to live? They're calling themselves a Christian. Are we going to allow this one to live? Or are we going to execute this one? And Saul says... I always was consenting to their death. Saul says in the 26th chapter in verse 10, I always voted that they would die. So we see that this man that persecuted Christians literally had part in executing Christians and must have had a very powerful role in doing it. Look at the description in the 8th chapter in verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. That's an interesting word, made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The idea of making havoc of the church is to maltreat, is to treat as if it's filthy or dirty. In other words, he looked at the church as a very disgusting thing, and it was his desire to literally put the church out of existence. Now that was quite ambitious, considering by this time the church would have been many, many, many thousands in size. The church could have easily been fifteen or 20,000, easily could have been that in size at this point, just in the one town of Jerusalem. And yet this man is so zealous and he is, is so powerful, he believes that he's going to end the church. He hated the Christian way because there was one that was the leader of it called Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he believed that that one of Nazareth was not the Messiah. He was not the Son of God. And everything he did was blasphemy. And everybody that talked and spoke of him was speaking blasphemy. And what God would want is he would want that put to an end. All of the followers put to an end. And so he gave his life to persecuting Christians. As a matter of fact, if you will, read with me one more passage of this persecution as it leads us to this ninth chapter. Look at the ninth chapter in verse 1. Then Saul, notice the language here. Remember, every word in the Bible was there for a reason. Notice these words. Then Saul, still. Why was that word still in there? Still breathing. Why describe it like that, Luke? Breathing. Threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he, if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. A little time has gone on. What do we find him doing? Still doing what he's been doing. Well, what has he been doing? Breathing threats. You ever seen someone that's so mad, they, they're just constantly in deep breaths, and when they talk, it's, it's just, their, their talk is a breath, because it's short breaths, but it's short, deep breaths, that, that they've got something they have to say, and he goes to the high priest, and he talks about all the threats, and all of the murders that, that he's done in Jerusalem, but he hears about the way in Damascus, and he wants permission, give me written letters, give me permission that I can go there, and I can destroy the way. Isn't that an interesting description? What is Christianity? It's the way. What did Jesus say he was? I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. Who are those that live for Jesus? They are people living in the way. And yet there was this one that was leading a cause to do away with the way. And then that one took his papers and he started his journey to Damascus. And we see the light. Lights, camera, action. But instead, let's take it a little bit out of order. Let's look at light, action, camera. What was this light that he saw? Notice, if you will, in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone from the heaven, and he fell on the ground, and he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus. And by the way, in the 22nd chapter, when this is recorded, this this conversion is told three times, the 22nd chapter and the 26th chapter also. In the 22nd chapter here where he says, I am Jesus, he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And so it's real clear who he was talking about here. He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the gold. Imagine a light so bright. All of us probably have been driving down the road or riding in a car and and the sun gets just at a place where where it literally almost blinds us. But imagine the light so so bright that it literally does blind Saul. As a matter of fact, he remains blind for three days. But it's in this blinded state that he sees someone for who he truly is for the first time. And when the Lord speaks to him here, it's interesting what he says. Saul, why are you persecuting me? But wait a minute, we don't have any record of Saul physically having his hands in the crucifixion of Jesus. So we don't think he's talking about, Saul, why did you help crucify me? Well, what's he talking about? Do you remember Matthew, the 25th chapter, when the Lord talked about that if you give me, if you give the the least of these food or water or, or shelter, you take in strangers, you visit the sick, you visit those who are in prison, you give clothes to the naked. And remember, they said, Lord, we never saw you like that. And he says, when you've done this to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. It's the very same teaching here. Saul, what have you done? You have persecuted Jesus himself. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Where Jesus makes it very clear He and the church is the same thing. They are the same thing. Have you ever gossiped about a brother or sister in Christ? Then you can say you've gossiped about Jesus. You ever ignored or turned your back on a brother or sister in Christ? you can say you've turned your back on Jesus. Have you ever hurt a brother or sister in Christ? You can say you hurt Jesus. But you can flip that same coin over and the opposite is true. Think of all the things you've done for your brothers and sisters and Jesus would say, you've done that for me. Whatever you perceive in your mind to be the least of these or the greatest of these, if it's the church, you're doing it to Jesus. Now that brings us to the understanding of Saul. Who is Jesus? Can you imagine how vehement he was against the reality that Jesus of Nazareth was truly the Messiah up until this time? 
And now it's almost like the drums are rolling. What is Saul going to do? Is he going to say what he's been saying all this time? Oh, he's not really the Messiah. He's not really the, ch- the Son of God. But no, this time the proof is there. Through the light, he is enlightened. He finally comes to the realization, Jesus of Nazareth truly is the Messiah. But you remember, that's the same thing the Jews had to do in Acts the second chapter. They were told if they were going to be saved, they had to call on the name of the Lord. They didn't know who the name of the Lord was. In the 2nd chapter, verse 22, they were told it was Jesus of Nazareth. Remember the same thing when John and Peter healed the lame man at the gate, and then all of the people came to the porch, Solomon's porch, and, and it was there that, that they came to hear, and, and it was in that setting that he reminded them, hey, the Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified, that God raised from the dead, he's the one that can save you. The message is always the same. Do you believe that He's the Lord? He is the only one that can save. And Peter had to accept. And he did accept. But there's something here that I've enjoyed thinking about, and I can just tell you after studying it again this week, I'm just going to enjoy continuing to think about it because I don't think in my understanding I'm anywhere close to the bottom of this. But it is in this same setting that Jesus throws out that line. Oh, by the way, Peter, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? You know, when we think about the goad was a long pole that had a very, very sharp point at the end. And if a man was, if a man was working his oxen, you can imagine him working them along and, and maybe one becomes stubborn and, and stops. And... I never worked oxen. I worked horses and mules. I don't know much about oxen. I assume it might be some of the same language. You know, they stop. He get up, get up. He just kind of turns his ears around. He kind of stands, looks at you. you reach over for the gold. You poke his ankle. Now, you send a little sharp stick through the cowhide. Any ox with any sense is going to say, I'm getting up. I'm going. But now, what if you have a really stubborn ox and you poke that stick through the cowhide and instead of walking away from the stick, he kicks against it. And it goes a couple of inches into his foot. You see what the Lord is saying to him? Saul, it's hard to kick against that sharp stick, isn't it? Oh, what were all of the sharp sticks that was in Saul's life? Can you imagine in his memory all of the people that he remembered that he had arrested? All the ones that he had thrown into jail. Those must have been sticky, painful memories for him. And friends, maybe no one here is guilty of throwing some Christian into jail, but surely all of us have been guilty of kicking against the Lord's admonition. Surely all of us can think of times where we've been stubborn with the Lord, where the Lord says, step up, come on, walk with me. I'm the light, let me shine the way, let me show you your darkness, let me call you to a better life. And maybe we've kicked against it. And we've kicked against it. And we're not extending the invitation right yet, 
But just think about it. If you've been kicking against it, why not stop? Why not tonight you be the night that says, I've been stuck by Satan's ways long enough. I've been pricked by a loving master, Jesus, that's just trying to get me to do the right thing. Book of Hebrews teaches us he'll discipline his children because he loves us. And this was God's way. In a loving way to stick it to Saul. Say, let's get it right, Saul. Believe me, I am the Messiah. Believe me. You've been persecuting me. Believe me, it's a hard life to kick against my ways. And then we have action. He rose from there and he was ready to obey the Lord. Notice he got up in verse 6 and he says, What do you want me to do? And the Lord said at the end of 6, Arise and go to the city that you'll be told what you must do. Notice he wasn't saved on the road to Damascus. The Lord got his attention. The Lord made him a believer, but he wasn't saved. Because we don't read anywhere of his sins being remiss. But he did go and he waited. And the Lord then, so now look, we're at the action. But then there's also action on another part, because keep in mind, we don't have any conversion story in the Bible that somebody on earth is not involved in helping that individual. And that's what we've been emphasizing as we go through this study of Acts, is to see that all of us have to be active in the work of the church. What's your ability? What's the opportunities God gives you? Make sure that you're using those to be active, to speak a good word for Jesus Christ. And so here we see in the 10th verse, he calls Ananias and he says, here I am, Lord. And then in 11, he tells him that he wants to go to Saul of Tarsus. We read that at the beginning. And then he tells him that Saul has already seen this vision, that Ananias is going to come. And then in 13, you've heard me mention this before. I want to read to you verse 13 the way I think might have been. I'm just giving you my opinion. This might have been the tone of voice and, and maybe the rate of the rate of speech that, that uh, Ananias would have been using here. You can imagine him saying, hey, I want you to go to Saul of Tarsus. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Can you imagine? I doubt seriously he was excited as he was saying this. He's saying, Lord... I don't think I need to remind you of anything. I think you know everything. But pardon my human weakness here. Do I need to remind you who this guy is? You're wanting me to go. And I know, word's gotten out. He has papers in hand. He's gone to Damascus for one cause. And it's to persecute people. And you want me to just come strolling up and say, I'm here to baptize you? And God answers in 15, go. For he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. Now, you remember the first point we made tonight? His background in Tarsus, his background with his family, his background with his education, and then being a Roman citizen. Notice all of that probably plays in to verse 15. Go, that's the action, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles. He can do that. Kings, he can do that. And the children of Israel, he can do that. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Why did this conversion take place? The light shone. Why did this take place? Action. 
God told Saul what to do. God told Ananias what to do. They both obeyed God, and the result was conversion. And you know what? Camera. It's been recorded. It's recorded in Acts 9. It's recorded in Acts 22. It's recorded in Acts 26. Why? Because it's important. And that brings us to the application tonight. Have you been enlightened with the fact that Jesus Christ is a Savior? Have you kicked long enough against Him that now you're ready to start walking with Him? Do you realize that the church is such a special group of people that whatever we do to and for the church, we do to Christ and for Christ? Don't you want to be a part of that body? To be a part of Christ? But it takes action. It takes action to say, I am going to go. I'm going to go to my Savior. I'm going to stand up before others and confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm going to go to the waters of baptism and I'm going to have my sins taken away. In the 22nd chapter, verse 16, when Ananias came to Saul, he said, And why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. They went to the water. But then finally tonight, notice this application. Just like his conversion was recorded and his life was recorded, ours is too. There's coming a day in 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter and verse 10, where everybody will stand before the Lord and everything we've done, whether good or bad, it's going to be discussed. It's being recorded right now. Isn't it wonderful when our sins are forgiven, the Lord takes those and forgets them and brings them up no more. Tonight, what do you want to be recorded on that day of judgment? The choice is ours. We can have the past wiped out, erased, and we can begin life today with the Lord. Tonight, let's make sure that we're always a people that's continuing the work of the Lord on this earth. A people that believes in that enlightenment that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, willing to go because we want to be with Him for an eternity. Tonight, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.